Our text today is taken from Daniel chapter 4, verses 28 through 37. Daniel 4, verses 28 through 37. All this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee, and they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men, and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hairs were grown like eagles' feathers, and his nails like birds' claws. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes, unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will, and the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say unto him what doest thou at the same time my reason returned unto me and for the glory of my kingdom mine honor and brightness returned unto me and my counselors and my lords sought unto me and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth, and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. In the text that is before us today, the question that sadly confuses many who profess Christ is clearly answered for us. These questions. Whose will is supreme? Our will or God's will? There are notable examples in scripture of mighty rulers who resisted the Lord God and would not humble themselves under his mighty hand. How did it turn out for these rulers who resisted God in each of these cases? You remember God said to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh said, no. I won't do so. His kingdom, as you recall, was decimated by the ten plagues, and his army was destroyed in the Red Sea. King Herod, in the New Testament, was struck by the Lord and was eaten by worms, we read, when he accepted worship from the people who said, a God is speaking unto us, and he accepted that worship rather than giving glory to God. And here in Daniel chapter 4, 
Nebuchadnezzar, the mightiest king that lived at that time, that reigned at that time, would not humble himself under the mighty hand of God. And God brought upon him a temporary insanity so that he was driven from his throne and he behaved like a cow. Whose will in each of these cases was supreme? Their will or God's will? Why do we think that we will fare any better than these kings, these mighty kings that are mentioned in Scripture, if we challenge the Lord our God and declare, I will not have God to reign over my life? You see, dear ones, it's a battle that we cannot win, that no one has ever won. And yet people spend their whole lives shaking their fists in God's face, as it were, sinfully claiming that they are going to live their lives as they want to live their lives, which always, inevitably, always leads to their own destruction, whether in this life or in the life to come. Dear ones, we're, we're not any different by nature. We are all rebels. We are all rebels against God by nature, just like Pharaoh, like Nebuchadnezzar, like Herod, like the Apostle Paul was a rebel against the Lord God. He was the chief of rebels, the chief of sinners, he says about himself. And yet he says, after becoming apostle, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he says, I am what I am by the grace of God. Not by nature, but by God's grace. It is not because, dear ones, we are better than any other rebels. It is only due to the work of God's rich mercy and grace to take away that rebel heart within us, that rebellious will, and to graciously grant unto us a will that wants to submit and that will submit unto him and trust him and will repent of sin and will love him and will obey him. It is only due to the grace of God. Paul says in Philippians 2.13, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. It is not ours by nature to will and to do God's good pleasure. It is God working within us to change our will, to change our heart. May we all come to see by God's grace the proud, unrepentant rebels against Jesus Christ will be destroyed. But those who are humbled by God's grace and turn to him will be exalted and blessed now and for all eternity. Our main points from our text today are these. First of all, the king's willful pride in Daniel 4, verses 28 through 30. The second main point, the king's judgment realized in Daniel 4, verses 31 through 33. And the third main point, the king's declaration of God's sovereignty in Daniel 4, verses 34 through 37. So our first main point the king's willful pride in verses 28 through 30. All this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? 
Daniel chapter 4 is absolutely unique. Uh, for in it, uh, it is, we find uh, that is given the testimony of a great king, the mightiest king that lived at that time, that learned the hard way that uh, God and his will is supreme. Not Nebuchadnezzar's will, but God and his will is supreme. Loving submission to Christ is not a dirty word. Submission in the Christian walk is not a dirty word. The world turns it into a dirty world, uh, word, uh, but in the Bible, biblical submission on the part of all of us to Jesus Christ uh, is something glorious, something that God blesses. And when we take that submission to Jesus Christ, willing submission, acknowledging that his will is supreme, that he is superior, and we take that submission and apply it to our various callings in life, whether it be within the home, whether it be in the church, or in the state, nevertheless, we learn that again, that this is not something cruel and unusual punishment. This is what God calls us to. Submission as God's people. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 6, Peter says, Likewise, ye younger, that is, ye younger people. So God speaking to you who are younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Now, that may be the elder as to office, the elders of the church, or it may simply be the elder, those who are older than you, uh, who have more experience, uh, who are to be treated with respect, contrary to the culture of today where the elderly are, are uh, not to be listened to, uh, they don't understand. Uh, that's what the culture teaches. That's what movies uh, uh, teach. That's what uh, we learn everywhere is that uh, the older people uh, are uh, not able to give you sound advice and counsel. Um, they don't understand uh, your own heart. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Peter says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another. We are to learn submission to one another in our various callings that God has given to us. And be clothed with humility, not with pride, but with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Dear ones, humility is a grace that God gives to us, but it's also a grace that we grow in. We learn humility uh, by way of uh, experiences, by way of the situations in which God places us. We learn through experience where our pride will lead us and how our pride will expose to us our foolishness, how our pride will lead to all kinds of devastating consequences. The, the example of Nebuchadnezzar here in Daniel 4 is given for our instruction by the Lord that we might learn the easy way by heeding God's Word, learning from the example of Nebuchadnezzar rather than having to learn the hard way by way of God's rod. I'd rather learn from God's word than from God's rod. And we can. We can do so. We can learn from the word of God, from the example that he gives to us. May it be so in our lives. Well, as we look at Daniel chapter 4, it's one year... As we begin verse 28, it's one year after the interpretation of the king's dream that was given to him by Daniel. The dream, you recall, 
that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar that uh, his wise men, so-called wise men, could not interpret. Uh, Daniel was called to interpret the dream. Daniel interprets the dream. And now the realization of that dream is about to fall upon Nebuchadnezzar. As Nebuchadnezzar was walking upon the roof of his palace, as he was looking over the, the, the beauty and the glory of Babylon, uh, he began to boast about the great city of Babylon uh, in verse 30. He says, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? In other words, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, Look, I did this. I did this. I accomplished this for my glory. <clears throat> From the historical records uh, that we have, uh, Babylon was indeed one of the most beautiful cities of the ancient world. <clears throat> and Nebuchadnezzar took, again, great pride uh, in all that he had built and was glorifying, glorifying himself in spite of the dream that God had interpreted for him. Though God does not strike each of us in our pride, which we all have, with the same judgment that fell upon Nebuchadnezzar or that fell upon Herod or fell upon Pharaoh, nevertheless, the Lord teaches us in the school of Christ, which we are in today, he teaches us in the school of Christ how abominable is our pride to him. It is indeed, pride is robbing the Lord God of his glory. We wouldn't, we wouldn't uh, I think most of us wouldn't think about going secretly, trying while our neighbors were uh, out of their house, go into their house and begin to rob their home of their valuables. I mean, that does happen, but I think in this audience, probably we would not think of doing that. And yet, again, dear ones, when we exercise pride, we go, as it were, into God's house and we rob Him of His glory, of His honor when we take it to ourselves. We may not consider pride to be all that bad. We may reason this way. We're all proud. Everybody's proud. Uh, we've all boasted and pride. After all, it's, it's not as serious. Pride's not as serious as murder. Pride is not as serious as adultery. I think that's the way many... Uh, argue and reason in their own minds, maybe even in their own words. That's where we are mistaken, though. For it is indeed our pride in rejecting God's will, doing our will, and asserting our will over God's will that leads to murder, that leads to adultery, that leads to all of the other sins and breaking the other commandments, the Ten Commandments, each of those commandments. Think of pride this way. Pride is idolatry. I. The focus is on I. Pride is I-dolatry. Pride is me-dolatry. Pride is that which is consumed with self. The temptation, the temptation to Eve, you recall, was that if she ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she would be like God. In Genesis 3, 5. And that's what pride is. It wants to be like God. It wants to be Lord. 
over our own lives rather than to acknowledge and to give God the glory that he is Lord. Pride exalts oneself rather than exalting Jesus. That's why God takes pride, dear ones, uh, as seriously as he does, because pride leads to breaking the first commandment, thou shalt not have any other gods before me, because then in pride we put ourselves on the throne. Pride leads to making uh, uh, images uh, and worshiping God according to our own idea, our own inventions, rather than worshiping God according to his commandments. Pride leads to profaning and treating as common and ordinary of the things that God calls holy. Pride leads to uh, us doing whatever we want to do on his day rather than honoring him and keeping his day holy as he has said it ought to be kept. And it leads to murder. I'm not going to do what God says. I'm not going to protect life. I'm going to take life because I want to do what I want to do. Leads to adultery. Uh, so selfish. Uh, I want to satisfy my lust, pride, stealing, bearing false witness, coveting. It all begins with pride in our hearts and in our lives. So let us not minimize pride. Let us not say, well, that's the acceptable Christian sin. No, it's not. It's an abomination unto God. <clears throat> quite the contrary to the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 says that he did not consider it to be, ro to be robbery, to be equal to God, because he was equal to God, and yet he, being God, lowered himself, humbled himself to take upon himself flesh, that he might serve, that he might minister to, that he might save his people from their sins, that he might endure God's wrath and punishment for his people. He became a servant. And because he became a servant, God has highly exalted him above every name. I want to also just qualify what I'm saying here. Uh, it is not a sin to give or to receive a compliment for a job well done. Proverbs 27, 2, Let another man praise thee, and not thine own mouth, a stranger, and not thine own lips. Uh, the, the problem is not with the compliment. The problem is what we do with the compliment. And that's the problem. The compliment certainly is an encouragement to our diligence and to our faithfulness to the Lord and in our calling. And so we ought to be indeed complimenting one another to encourage one another. But again, once having received the compliment, what do we do with it? Who do we praise? When we receive a compliment, do we praise ourselves or do we praise and thank God who has given to us the strength, the ability, the resources to be able to do the work that was done? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Now I understand that's that's really calling to do all to the glory of God. It's, it's in effect, um, calling us to do something that we know and that we are just not capable of doing in, in this world. Uh, there will come a time when we will give uh, all glory to God. But again, it, it sets before us the standard. And we see in, in the face of that standard how far we fall short of giving God glory for all that we do and why we need to continually be humble before him because we don't give God the glory that we should. 
If we do not find ourselves glorifying the Lord Jesus, dear ones, for our gifts and resources, for our successes, if we find ourselves not doing so, upon examining our hearts and we find that we're not doing so, it should be to us a warning call to beware of pride. That's why we're not doing so. It's due to, again, pride. And those those, uh, divine warnings those wake-up calls when God shows us we're not giving glory to God. We're not thankful. We're a thankless people. We complain, we complain, we complain about what we don't have or what we want, but we're not a thankful people. It's because we're filled with pride. We're more consumed, again, with ourselves than with God and with others. And yet, that's what we're going to be doing for all eternity. We're going to be giving glory to God. That's what, that's what God's people do in heaven. It's one of the things they do, is they give God glory. They praise him. In Revelation 19.1, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. They're continually filled with praise to God. If that's what we will be doing for all eternity, at least one of those activities that we will be doing uh, for all eternity, we'll have much, much more to do. But that being uh, at the head of of the list of what we will be doing, uh, shouldn't we be even here in this world learning to give God glory. Shouldn't we be growing in humility, not pride, putting to death the pride in our life, saying and learning that we should hate our pride and love humility, not hate humility and love pride? A heart that has been changed by the Lord will be a heart that exalts and glorifies the Lord Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar-like boasting. There was a certain warning of pride. I-dolatry. Whereas Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 17, but he that glorieth or boasteth let him glory or boast in the Lord. And Jeremiah says this, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. And when it says glory, that means boast. Let not the wise man glory or boast in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory or boast in his might. Let not the rich man glory or boast in his riches. But let him that glorieth, boasteth, glory in this, boast in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Are we boasting that that God has given us grace to know him. He's given us grace to behold, to see his loving kindness, his justice, to see his mercy and to receive it. Our culture and sadly even the church in the present age are not helpful in this regard, but together, Our culture and so much of the church leads us down the path of pride. Teaching us to boast in ourselves. Teaching us that we are to love ourselves above all. Teaching us that we are to esteem ourselves above all. That we cannot love God and we cannot love anyone else unless we first love ourselves chiefly. That's pride, dear ones. Unadulterated pride. 
Pride, dear ones, is all about ourselves. And when that is the focus, ourselves, we will never, listen closely, we will never be filled with joy and contentment because we will never receive all that pride thinks that we should receive. When the focus is on ourselves, pride is never satisfied. Pride is never satisfied with what we have. Pride is never satisfied with the way that others treat us. We will never learn contentment if we are filled with pride. It is only when we humble ourselves, when we are abased, that seeking to protect our pride is no longer the case. As long as our life is spent in trying to defend and protect our pride, we will always be hurt. By circumstances, we will always be hurt by other people. But when pride is mortified, when pride is crucified, when pride is growing dead and more dead within our lives, we learn that there is so much more to life than living for God and serving others. And what others do to us doesn't matter because our pride is not being hurt. The Apostle Paul says it this way, if we want to live a life of humility and not pride, for, me, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. When our life is all about Jesus Christ, when it's not about ourselves, when it's not about our pride, Whatever we lose in this life, we realize we've not lost Christ. We value Christ so much that we could lose all things in this world, and yet we would gain everything in having Christ. And death, and even death itself, is a gain to those whose life is Christ, because Death takes us to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. All that is in the world can be lost. Only Jesus cannot be lost. Our second main point, the king's judgment realized in Daniel chapter 4, verses 31 through 33. While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken. The kingdom is departed from thee, and they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men, and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hairs were grown like eagles' feathers, and his nails like birds' claws. God had given Nebuchadnezzar a whole year since the dream and its interpretation to repent, as Daniel actually counseled Nebuchadnezzar to do in Daniel 4, verse 27. That was the last thing Daniel left with Nebuchadnezzar, to cut off his sins, to repent of his sins, to show mercy uh, to those that he has oppressed but it made no lasting impression upon Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar delayed, he procrastinated 
to take seriously what God had revealed unto him. Let us learn, dear ones, that God's delays in not bringing judgment upon us for our sins are not a sign of his forgetfulness. They're not a sign of his approval of our sins. But his delays are a sign of his mercy to us to turn from our sin unto him. How many times have we been convicted by a passage of Scripture? How many times have we been convicted through a conversation that we have had with one another about some sin in our life, something that needed to change? How many times have we been convicted by a sermon that we must turn from this or that sin, but we delayed, we waited, we procrastinated because we do not take God seriously, as Nebuchadnezzar did not take God seriously. Dear ones, if we belong to Jesus Christ, he will not allow the delay to continue out of love for us. He will not allow the delay to go on and on and on because he loves us too much. Those delays filled with excuses on our part will cost us in either leading us into other sins or bringing certain miseries by way of consequences into our lives in order to teach us in order to instruct us. May God's mercy lead us to repentance, not to laziness. May God's delays lead us to diligence, not to be comfortable in our sin, in our rebellion, and to leave the conviction simply where it occurred, not in action, not in taking any steps at all. I dare say, dear ones, and we may at times say, where is the Lord? Why, when I spend time with the Lord, why isn't there that closeness? Why isn't there that nearness? There may be various reasons for that, but let me give you one reason, one reason for that in our lives, all of our lives. Nothing will hinder our communion and our fellowship with Jesus Christ more than ignoring God's conviction in our lives through his word and his spirit. Nothing will hinder our communion with Christ more than that. When he convicts us, and we do not take it seriously, or we become forgetful, or we delay, we procrastinate. And the Lord will withdraw that sense of his presence in order for us to, say, to understand this is serious business with God. If he convicts us, we need to do something about it. We read that a voice came from heaven, which Nebuchadnezzar heard, saying, in effect, time is up. A kingdom is taken from thee. A voice that he heard was likely the voice of one of the angelic watchers that we previously read about in the dream in Daniel 4, verses 13 through 14. And the watchers detail what is about to befall the king here through the agency of these watchers. You see, again, how this voice says in verse 32, the voice says, and they shall drive thee. Who are the they? They shall drive thee from men. Uh, I would submit again that the they would be the angelic watchers. They will drive Nebuchadnezzar from the society of men. And then it says, they that is, the angelic watchers, shall make thee 
to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou dost know the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Verse 33, the same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven. Who drove him? The angelic watchers. Uh, he was driven from men, etc., etc. <clears throat> This judgment of insanity, we learn, would again continue upon the king until he learned that God Most High is the one who governs and rules among nations and raises up rulers and puts down rulers until Nebuchadnezzar learned that he is not supreme, until Nebuchadnezzar learned that his will is not supreme, but God's will is supreme. Rulers are mere servants. They are mere servants. Their will doesn't reign. They are to submit their will to God. God is Lord over all, and he must be worshipped as such. We read verse 33, the same hour that this voice was heard, which simply is to say, within a very short period of time, God brought insanity upon Nebuchadnezzar for a period of seven times. That is likely seven years. The angelic watchers drive him from human society. He was unable to think he was unable to speak as a human being. Uh, he resisted human society. He would not take shelter uh, in man-made dwellings or come under the care of men and his servants. The word grass is a more general term in the Aramaic language that refers to grown things. The grass could include herbs, could include fruits, could, in, uh, uh, could also have in view vegetables as well. But this is what he was driven to. Interestingly, there are notable cases in ancient and in modern history which report people who have had uh, a similar serious kind of insanity. It's called boanthropy. Uh, and uh, boanthropy, look it up uh, and you know, just uh, do a search on boanthropy. But uh, even in those particular documented uh, cases, uh, this case stands out as unique with regard to Nebuchadnezzar because in this particular case, <clears throat> uh, his insanity uh, was the result of God bringing that directly upon him to humble him for his pride in glorifying himself and not in glorifying God. Here is a picture, if you will, dear ones. Here is a picture of what pride and self-exaltation do to us. A very vivid picture. Pride does not beautify us, as the world tells us that pride does. Pride does not beautify us. It debases us. Pride causes us to act like animals. That's how God showed where Nebuchadnezzar's pride led him to acting like an animal. As we see in our culture today, why do we see the deterioration why do we see the corruption? Why do we see such wickedness in high places and low places? Why do we see what is happening in our world today? It's because, again, of the exaltation of pride. Pride turns mercies from God such as gifts, abilities, and successes into curses that destroy us. 
Whereas the gospel of Jesus Christ beautifies us because it exalts the glory of God with which we are adorned when we are brought to Jesus Christ. We are adorned with the beautiful garments of his righteousness, of his glory. We are brought to see that that in becoming like Jesus, not filled with pride, but in humility, is the only way that we're not going to be acting like beasts. But rather, we'll be conformed to his image when we understand the devastating consequences and effects of pride in our life. The last main point, the king's declaration of God's sovereignty in verses 34 through 37. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom and mine honor and brightness returned unto me. And my counselors and my lords sought unto me. And I was established in my kingdom. And excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. All whose works are truth and his ways judgment. And those that walk in pride he is able to abase. Now we come to Nebuchadnezzar's conclusion. When the seven times or the seven years were fulfilled, King Nebuchadnezzar testifies here that his sanity and his former rule as king were returned unto him. And he blesses the Most High God declaring that God's dominion, God's rule, God's government, God's will is above his own. God's kingdom and glory endures forever from generation to generation, whereas his does not. Nebuchadnezzar's does not. Nebuchadnezzar further elaborates in verse 35, and I... In reading verse 35, I would suggest to you that there is not a more clear statement in all of Scripture that answers the question, whose will is supreme? Our will or God's will? Verse 35. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Nebuchadnezzar, dear ones, did not will, did not exercise his will. He did not want, he did not choose, he did not say, I want to be sent from my throne. I will to be reasoning, thinking, and acting like a cow. That was God's will. That was God's will. Whose will is supreme? Whose will is absolute? God's will. In asking and answering this question, we do not deny that humans have a will what we affirm the Bible teaches about our will is the following. First of all, 
that our will is limited as creatures. We cannot bring to pass whatever we will. That should be obvious to us. Otherwise, we would not will probably anything miserable to happen to us, and certainly we wouldn't will that we die. We would will that we live forever if it was our will that reigned and ruled. But rather, we understand from Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto men wants to die. Appointed by who? Appointed by God. We once died, but after this, the judgment. Whereas on the other hand, in Job 14.5, we see who does set these boundaries. Whose will does control the number of our days. Seeing his days are determined. Man's days are determined. Determined by who? By God. Determined. The number of his months are with thee. That is with God. Thou hast appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. We also affirm the Bible teaches about our will, that our will is fallen. Our will is corrupt in Adam. And our will cannot in Adam submit itself to God. Cannot submit itself to follow God, to obey his holy commandments. Our will cannot do that. Paul says in Romans 8, 7 through 8. Because the carnal mind, that is the fleshly, the corrupt mind, the unbelieving mind, is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh, those who are unbelievers in the flesh, cannot please God. Their will cannot be subject to the will of God. Because, again, their will is dead to God. It has to be made alive by God. We also affirm the Bible teaches about our will, that our will is renewed in Christ at regeneration, so that we now, as believers, we now can choose to trust Jesus. We can choose to love Jesus. We can choose to to obey Christ and his commandments. For it is God that worketh in us both to will and to do his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. And then finally, much more could be said, but in summary, we say this, that the Bible teaches this about our will, our renewed will is perfected at death so that we will only will to obey God, to praise God in heaven. We will only choose to obey the Lord. We will not choose to disobey him. We will not will to go contrary to his commandments in heaven. Matthew 6.10, part of the Lord's Prayer, notice, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven because God's will is always done in heaven. In contrast, what does God say about his will in Scripture? We've just learned what the Bible says about man's will in Scripture. What does the Bible teach about God's will in Scripture? Whereas the human will is limited, God's will is unlimited and almighty. In Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all deep places. Whatever pleased the Lord. We can't say that about man. Whatever pleased man, he did whatever he wanted to do, but we can't say that about God because God's will is unlimited. It has no boundaries. It's infinite. Isaiah 46.10, we read, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, notice, 
This is God speaking. My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Not some of my pleasure. Not most of my pleasure. I will do all of my pleasure. In fact, the Bible is quite clear that the human will cannot, underline the word cannot, the human will cannot restrain God's will. In Psalm 33, verses 10 through 11, the Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. So what man wills, the counsel of man, God brings to nothing. So he restrains, God restrains man's will. Goes on to say, he maketh the devices of the people of none effect. Whatever they have devised to occur, he brings it to none effect. And then it concludes, that passage concludes by saying, the counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. God's counsel, God's will. Though human will cannot restrain God's will, God's will does indeed restrain man's will. As we've read here in Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand, that is, hinder his hand, or saying to him, what doest thou? God restrains man's will. And thank God he does. Because of our wicked hearts. If God did not restrain the wicked heart of men, we would kill, destroy one another so that there was no life left upon earth. That's how wicked man's heart is. If God did not restrain man's will. Just as he restrained here, Nebuchadnezzar's will, who did not want to become a beast, and yet God, by his will, restrained Nebuchadnezzar's will so that his will, God's will, was realized. God's will, and I'll close talking about the will, I'll close on this with regard to God's will. God's will, like God himself, is absolutely sovereign. God's will is absolutely sovereign, absolutely almighty. Ephesians 1.11, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Who worketh all things, not some things after the counsel of his will, but who worketh all things after the counsel of his will. God's will is perfectly holy. Psalm 145, 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. If all his ways and all his works are holy and righteous, then his will that he decrees is holy and righteous. And God's will is infinitely wise, even as he is infinitely wise. In 1 Timothy 1, 17, now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The only wise God. He's infinitely wise. God never makes a mistake. No fault can be attributed to God's plan. Even if we do not understand, even if we uh, see murders, even if we see rapes, even if we see child molestation, even if we see all of these things. God could have restrained all of those things, could he not? He's the Almighty. He restrained Nebuchadnezzar. He could restrain those things if he chose to do so. He could prevent those from happening if he chose to do so. The fact that he hasn't means that there is a purpose. And we may not understand the purpose, but I can, in general terms, say this that the purpose involves God glorifying either his justice and bringing his judgment upon the wicked or in showing his mercy 
to those who deserve his judgment, showing his mercy unto them. God glorifies himself, and we don't have to say and be able to explain in every case, I understand what God was doing in allowing this and permitting this to happen. We don't have to be omniscient. In fact, for us to think so is a sin on our part. It's to usurp God's omniscience. God knows. God never makes a mistake. There is a plan. There is a purpose in everything that happens. It's not because no one is in control. It's not because uh, fate is merely uh, ruling and controlling or Satan is only ruling and controlling. It's because God is in control and there's a reason and there's a purpose. And because there's a reason and a purpose there means that there is a design. There is hope. If there is no reason or no purpose to what is happening, we would not have hope. What could we hope for? If God was not in control. This is the application that I would leave with you as we close. This truth that God's will is supreme will terrify unbelievers. For if that is true and it is, then unbelievers, they are all accountable to this holy and sovereign God and they will stand before him to be judged by his righteous commandments and to suffer all for all eternity due to his just condemnation as a righteous judge for their sin. But on the other hand, this truth is one of the most precious and comforting truths to believers in Jesus Christ. For the will that governs this world is the sovereign will of God who loves us, his people, chosen us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, sent Jesus to pay for our sins, granted unto us everlasting life, and has promised to be with us and never to leave us nor to forsake us in whatever we face in this world. Only if God is sovereign and his will is supreme can we have hope. Can we have hope that he has a perfect plan, an all-wise plan that will glorify his justice, that will glorify his grace, that will glorify his mercy in all of the wickedness and in all of the chaos that exists in this world, we have hope if God is in control because God wins and God is sovereign. But we have no hope if it is man's will that controls what is happening. We all lose if it is man's will. But we who trust in Jesus we win if God is in absolute control. Please stand with me in prayer. Father in heaven, glory be to thy holy name. May we love, Lord, thy will, both thy will that predestinates all things that come to pass. May we love thy moral will found in thy commandments and precepts. May we humble ourselves under thy mighty hand, under thy holy hand. May we not consider, Lord, to be humbled under thee, to submit ourselves unto thee, Lord, to be something awful and terrible, but may we find the greatest comfort, encouragement, and security under the almighty hands of God. We pray, our Lord, that thou would, would uh, give to us today 
hope in thee. Whatever we're going through today, whatever we're facing, whatever we've heard on the news, and we're aghast, uh, we are taken back by the corruption and the wickedness of men, which God exposes uh, continually by way of sin and injustice, but which will be punished, if not here upon the earth, forever, for everlasting in hell, for those who refuse to repent. Thou art a just God. And we pray, our Lord, that thou would, would teach us we do not have to learn the hard way, as did Nebuchadnezzar, that we can learn our God the easy way through thy word. Whether Nebuchadnezzar was truly a believer or not, and this testimony has been left to us, we may not be able to, to clearly make that judgment but our God, uh, thou did teach him through what he experienced. And he proclaims that truth, what he experienced, that thou art the supreme God. Thou art uh, the God whose will reigns over all. We ask, Lord, may we submit to that holy will. In Jesus' name, amen.